year. And if you're like me, you watch TV. I know that's a stretch for everybody here. Uh, but on TV, you may have noticed that things have started to change. Every night around 6 o'clock now, there's some kind of special that's going to be on. It's accompanied with very twinkly graphics. Everything is red and green. And there's stories to be told about Christmas. And every single night, you can catch one of your classic Christmas tales, or maybe a brand new one featuring your favorite TV show, uh, people doing their Christmas thing. I want to show you this. This represents about 15% of the actual Hollywood-produced Christmas movies that are out there. There's a lot of them up there, right? That's maybe 15%. I was told after the first service that that number goes way down when you start including all the, the TV specials, everything from the Flintstones all the way up to the Vampire Diaries, right? Like, everybody's got a Christmas special. And the thing that I find amazing about all these Christmas movies and the Christmas specials is that they all follow a very simple formula. Now, there's about two or three that get used. There's one that's a magical formula, right? And there's where you put all your Santa Clauses and all that stuff. That's where all that goes. The second one is the romantic formula, right? Uh, you know this Christmas special. It is every Christmas special ever filmed. A single mom has a kid who's unbelieving in Christmas, and somehow throughout the course of the show, they find themselves the perfect man, and he becomes the dad and the husband. Alright? Christmas is wonderful, right? And then you have the other one, which, which is the kind of magical one. You have a man who doesn't believe in Christmas or anything to do with Christmas, and he goes out, but halfway through the show, he has to start caring about another individual, which is in itself a miracle. And then everybody experiences some grand miracle of Santa or something like that. And then, boom, everybody <laughs> believes in, in the power and the magic of Christmas. That's every Christmas movie ever made. And then you have the religious ones, uh, which, you know, are pretty standard. You can't really deviate very much as to what that one's going to be. But there's one Christmas movie that I love. It is my absolute favorite Christmas movie. It is all about a young man who cares so much about his family that he has to journey a very long distance to take care of them, to make sure they're safe, and to make sure that Christmas is the best day that it can possibly be. He has to care for his wife who's in a troubling situation. You may know where I'm going with this. Yes, that man was John McClane in Die Hard. It was no ordinary Christmas for John McClane. He had to fight some terrorists. He had to make sure his kids were okay. Man, what a great movie. By the way, this makes a wonderful stocking stuffer for any man. Uh, if you're kind of confused as to what you want to do, get that. He will love it. I promise you that much. The truth of the matter is, uh, we want to celebrate Christmas, and we want to celebrate, and we want to worship the one that has the power to save. And on Christmas Eve at 6.30, we're going to be having a service here. It's very similar to our regular services. And so we're encouraging everybody to invite somebody you know to come to that service. It's a first step. It's a chance for you to, to talk about Jesus a little bit in a safe and easy way. We have these... We have these... That really wasn't that much effort, by the way. Uh, we have these little... Uh, we have these little invitations. They're just business card size. They fit in your pocket. You can carry a huge stack of them around with you. Take them to work. Take them to school. Take them and give them to your friends and family. Um, invite them to be here. By the way, we're expecting about 230 people here that night. And that's not exaggerating. We actually are expecting that many. Uh, so if you're coming, come a little bit early. Get a seat. Because uh, it's going to fill up very, very quickly. 
Let's take a second and let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we just come before you right now and we want to worship you. God, we just ask that you will help to focus our minds. Help us to put aside the things of today. Help us to put aside the worries and the troubles. Help us to put aside the, the joys and, and the friendships for a moment. And Father, help us to focus on you. May your spirit be here right now. Be in us, Lord. And help us to understand you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Of the many things that are, are great about Jesus, one of the things I love the most is that he's a bit of a wild card. You see, his disciples never really knew what he was going to do or what he was going to say. They would expect one thing and he would deliver another. You see, he was on his way to Jerusalem for the most important feast in the Jewish calendar. This is the Feast of the Passover. Very, very important time. And he's traveling along with a very large crowd, and they stop in a town called Jericho. Now, the crowd is really pleased with Jesus. They're all heading down. Lots and lots of Jews are migrating down to Jerusalem for this feast. It's kind of a pilgrimage. And they're coming there, and they're getting really excited with Jesus because he's been doing so much. And, and the popularity is swelling around him. And they're expecting Jesus is going to announce that he is the king. And they're expecting that Jesus is going to lead a rebellion against Rome. Remember, the Romans were in control of the world at the time. And so the Jews weren't allowed to be Jewish. They had to be Roman first. They had to give their, their, their taxes. They had to give of their time and their energies. They had oppressors that were over them, and these were the Romans. And so they were expecting Jesus to declare himself as the new king. He was going to lead this rebellion. And Jesus most likely knew what the crowd was thinking, because he did something very, very strange. He went off and spent the day with a guy named Zacchaeus. And we looked at this guy last week. As you know, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, I want you to erase the image from your mind that he worked for H&R Block or for Government Canada or for Revenue Canada or anything like that. We all hate paying taxes, I know, but this wasn't anything like that. Tax collectors in those times were more akin to, to a collaborator. We've all seen enough movies to know what that's like. Think of Nazi-occupied Europe. A collaborator was someone who went along with what their, their overlord said in order to keep themselves safe, to think of themselves first. They would even help oppress their own people if it meant that they would be okay in the eyes of their oppressors. Or think of maybe slavery in the United States during that period. The house slave, the one that was kind of in charge of all the other slaves, he was seen as a collaborator. He would even help oppress his people if it meant that he would get the, the pleasure and the acceptance from the family that he was working for. This is what Zacchaeus was. In the eyes of his people, he was a collaborator. He was accepted as a second-class citizen to the Romans. He was not a member of the Jewish people. And yet, as we discovered last week, Jesus not only dines with him, Jesus not only goes to his house and has a party with him, he teaches him, he forgives him, and he even declares this man to be a kingdom of God. In Luke 19, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, being Jesus, came to seek and to save what is lost. Jesus is trying to reorient the crowd's thinking. He's saying, yeah, I'm not coming to lead a rebellion. 
I've come to seek and save what was lost. But the people aren't getting that. This whole concept of grace to them is just such a foreign concept. They look at this guy and they say, this guy? Seriously? I mean, look at him. He doesn't belong with us. He's not one to be part of this kingdom. He doesn't belong here. And they're very confused. And he knows that he has promises to people. He says, if I've, if I've wronged anyone, I'm going to repay them up to four times what, what I took from them. And this is a big promise. And I'm sure he went ahead and did that. Scripture gives us no indication that he didn't. But imagine the people right in that moment. He says, Zacchaeus, the collaborator. Yeah, uh-huh. You're going to repay me four times what you took from me. Sure. Right? They didn't believe this guy. They didn't believe what was happening. Grace is a foreign concept. And Jesus saw where their thinking was leading. He saw the black and white approach that they were taking to people. And so he decided that he wanted to tell a story to be crystal clear on who the enemies of the kingdom were and who the servants of the kingdom were. So he told them a story. It starts out like this. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Did you notice what he does there? He has to go to a different country to be appointed king. You know where that happened? This, this happened in ancient Rome all the time. You see, the Romans didn't just go in and take over and wipe out all the leadership. No, that would instigate rebellions all the time. Instead, amongst those people, they would select somebody and say, you are going to be the king of your people, and you will serve us. That way, they kept all the locals in line, and this was, this was standard practice. So Jesus says there's a man who's going to become king. This perks up the ears of everybody there. All right, Jesus is going to be talking about the kingship. Here we go. And he went to a different country to be appointed as king. This means he goes somewhere else for this other authority to appoint this man as king. Already in the ears of the Jewish people, they're saying, this guy's a traitor. This guy is a collaborator. This, this king person. And so this king calls together all of his servants. And he calls ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus. He says, put this money to work until I come back. <clears throat> Go to verse 14. But his subjects hated him, and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. To the people that were under this king's rule, they didn't even want him as king, because he was this collaborator guy. He was going off and having the other establishment say that he was king. And so, they hate this other establishment so much that they appeal to this other establishment to say, we don't want this guy as king. This is something that, that is just absolutely remarkable to me. They don't want this guy as king. And just like the Jews of Jesus' time, the people hate the traitor who would bow to someone else's authority. But in verse 15, we discover this guy's made king anyway. Verse 15. He was made king and returned home. Then he sent for the servants, the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second servant came and said, Sir, here's, oh, sorry. The second servant came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. 
His master answered, take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. See, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I am going to judge you by your own words. You wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has will be given more. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now there's an awful lot to unpack in that story, both for the listeners then and for us now. But I think it's really important that we understand right off the bat who the king is. Okay? Now many of you may already have a guess in your mind as to who the king actually is. But a long time ago in a Sunday school class, a teacher was sitting teaching her kids, and she had them shout out the answer. And they had learned after many, many years that the answer was almost always Jesus. So I want you to play the part of the Sunday school class, okay? This is for everybody now. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. You just shout out what you think the right answer is. Who is God's son? Jesus. Well, that was half-hearted. Come on. All right. Who is God's son? Jesus. Better. Who forgives our sins? Jesus. Who loves us more than anything? Jesus. And then she said, what is brown and furry and collects nuts? <laughs> and one little kid put up his hand and he said, you know, that sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> You know, in church, many times the answer is Jesus, and in this case, yes, the answer is Jesus, in fact. Jesus is the king. He is the king to whom he is referring. But if this is Jesus, if Jesus is the king in this story, why does he act so weird? Have you ever thought about that? This king doesn't come off as loving and merciful and forgiving. He doesn't come off as the standard picture of Jesus, does he? No, instead, we see him having servants, right? We don't consider ourselves necessarily the servants of Jesus. We always talk about the friendship. We talk about the love that we have. And next, he's, he's really demanding with these servants. And he gets really upset when someone gives him back his own property. Then he becomes sarcastic and a little short-tempered. And then he has people brought before him to be punished and to be murdered. And this is Jesus. This is the same Jesus that just a moment ago forgave the sins of a collaborator. He welcomed an enemy to his table, and now he's suggesting that perhaps those who are already at the table with him, those who are already in the kingdom with him, may be worse than this man who's collaborated. In the story, people outright reject Jesus as their king. They outright reject this man. They send a delegation, in fact, to say, no, we don't want him as king. Do real people reject Jesus as king? I bet they do. The 
the people Jesus were talking to in that moment, that crowd that was there, that was anticipating this new kingdom, that wanted to declare Jesus as king, one day later are shouting out before the religious authority, we want to crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. That's an incredible story. An incredible thing for a group of Jews to be shouting at the top of their lungs. We have no king but Caesar. Jesus, despite being God, and despite being on a mission of love and grace, is not accepted. He is not accepted by the vast majority of people. If he is the king, he is king over all creation, how much of creation acknowledges him as king? Very few. In fact, many people would rather crucify him than have him as king. Even people who are supposed to be his trusted servants suffer from this problem. You see, the one servant, the one servant that kind of stands out among the rest there, he shows up and he thinks that this king is going to be distant, that he's going to be cold, that he's going to be mean, that he's going to be a real jerk. And he decides to do nothing with what he's given. And you know, there's a temptation here when we read this story to look at it and to kind of take pity on this guy, right? You look at it and say, well, what's really so bad with what he did? I mean, he gave back what the king gave him. It was the king's in the first place. The guy just gave him back his stuff. That's not so bad. Why is he being so unfairly treated? And that's actually a really good question. Except we miss we miss what the servants were supposed to do with the money. See, back in verse 13, it says this, So he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus, one to each of them. And it's easy to miss this, too. He called ten servants, and he gave out one to each of the ten. And we only have a description of what happens to three of them. Keep that in mind. All of these servants were given gifts. So he called ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and he says... Put this money to work until I come back again. He gives them a direct command. He says, I have given you something. Now you must take that something and do something with it. I will accept nothing less. You are to go out and do something with it until I come back. So the servant, really, he's not guilty of just simply not listening to the king, which is bad enough, isn't it? He's guilty of not only not listening, he's guilty of actually declaring that he knows better than the king himself as to what to do with the king's property. Right? The king said, go and do something with this, and he said, no, 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 I'm just going to tuck it away in the sock drawer for a little bit. He's saying to the king, I know better than you. You may think you know the situation here, king, but really... Your gift is good for nothing but sitting there in my sock drawer. And then you can have it back, nothing lost, nothing gained. We're all okay, we're square, even Stephen. But that's not the deal. That's not what the king wanted. And you know, we can, we can make an analogy as to who this servant is. And I've heard a lot of analogies. I've heard it said that this servant would be like an agnostic type person who acknowledges that there is a God but is unwilling to do anything about it because there's just too much evidence out there they can't make a choice. I don't think that's true. I think this servant is a believer. 
I think this servant represents somebody who is supposed to be in the kingdom of God. And here's why. He's one of the servants who receives a gift. He's already in the employ of the king. He has already acknowledged that the king is his king. This is a servant. This is a believer. In our terms, this is someone who comes to church. This is someone who comes and sings songs and acknowledges the Lord as Savior. And says, yes, Father, you are my king. This is someone who takes communion and proclaims the Lord's death and resurrection. And says, I accept salvation from you, God. And then sits and does nothing. That's what this person is. When we find out in Revelation what happens to these people. These people are called lukewarm. Everybody knows this. Oh, something that's lukewarm is kind of gross. And he says, what I'll do with you lukewarm people... I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, I have a nine-month-old at home. Spew is gross. Don't kid yourselves. It's very, very gross. And this is what God is going to do with those who claim Him as King and do nothing about it. servant says. He says, Master, I know you're a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You take things that aren't yours. You are, you are very, very hard. So that's why I did what I did. And look at how he responds. He says, really? You thought that I was such a jerk that I was going to come and take things that didn't belong to me? Alright. Let's roll with that for a second. If you really believed that, that I was such a jerk, why didn't you behave in a way that would protect yourself from if you really believed that I was going to come here and I was going to demand things of you that weren't my own, why didn't you do something that would protect yourself from that? Why didn't you invest the money somewhere? Why didn't you do, do just a little bit of work just to protect yourself from it? Why? And the servant has no answer for that. If God really is such a jerk, if Jesus really is such a jerk, if we view him in a way that says, yes, he's only out to get me, even that says something about faith. Even that says something, well, at least I should go out and do something to make sure that he's not going to judge me in such a negative way. And, and the most amazing thing about it is that's kind of where our brains stop sometimes. It's like, yep, Jesus is sitting there. He's a mean kid on an hill with a big old magnifying glass. He's just waiting for me to mess up so he can zap me. And if that's true, don't mess up. But, but there's a whole other part of the story here. Remember the other servants? The first two that show up, the first guy, he, he makes ten more. He multiplies that, that money quite a bit. And what does God, or what does the king do for him? He says, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. You may need ten dollars, great, here's ten cities. That's huge. And then the next guy, five, alright, five cities, boom, there you go. But I want you to understand something. These people, these servants... They did the bare minimum of what was expected of them. Think about it. He said, go out and do something with this cash. And when I come back, just tell me what, what happened. They did exactly that. They didn't go way out beyond. They didn't seek other sources of money to bring in and to multiply the thing. They just went out and did as they were told. And the king lavished extravagant gifts on them for doing that. Think about it. Okay, if we were to go to a restaurant, all right? You walk into the restaurant, and you're going to have a bare minimum expectation of that restaurant, right? You're going to expect it to be clean. 
Uh, you're going to be expect you're going to expect to be seated and served in a relatively quick fashion, and you're going to expect the food to be warm or cold if you like salads and stuff. You're going to expect that, right? That's just the bare minimum expectation. Now, if, if a waiter comes over and meets that bare minimum expectation, how is your tip going to look? All right, pretty good. But if that that waiter comes over and exceeds your expectation and does a tremendous job and is joking with you, makes you feel comfortable and brings you a little extra, you know, and is really quick on the drinks and all that stuff, your tip goes way, way up. Or at least I know mine does. Because I'm very, very gracious. I have a lot of gratitude for what they've done for me. If that's how I can respond to somebody waiting on me, to, to meeting my expectations and beyond, how much more will God, who is the creator and the author of all things, the God of the universe, Lavish on us blessing after blessing for meeting his expectations and beyond. And by the way, what do we do with those waiters who are a little entitled? You know who I'm talking about. We've all had that waiter. They come over and they're just like, here's your food. And they just walk off, you know. They don't pay any attention to you at all. And then afterwards, they're expecting a really great tip. Those people drive me nuts. I almost want to take away from my bill so that you know, they'll understand. That, that's, that's my mentality when I go to restaurants. Those entitled waiters don't get lavish rewards for meeting the bare minimum expectation or below. Now, we're Christians. And if we proclaim Jesus as our king, he has an expectation that we're going to go out and do something. But what has he given us? It's not minus, it's not this money idea. But he's given us so much more than just that. Yes, we have money. But we also have families. We have friends. We have jobs. We have food. We have clothes. We have pets and cars. We have Christmas time. We have, we have a wonderful country in which we live in. We have political freedoms. We have political representation. We have influence over other countries in our, in our world. We have actually been given every advantage in our planet. We have the most resources of any nation. We, we, we just, we've been blessed upon blessed upon blessed just simply being, being born in this country. We haven't even asked for any of this stuff. It's just given to us. For those of us who were born here, for those of you who moved here, you're now into a part of a wonderful, wonderful country that wants to take care of you and wants to see you grow and prosper. And, and this is a remarkable thing in our world. And that's just the stuff that we have. God has also given us our natural abilities. Some of you may be musical. Some of you may be able to write. Some of you may be artistic. Some of you may be super friendly. Maybe you have the gift of gab. You've been given all kinds of natural abilities to go out there and to use them somehow. And that's just... Your natural abilities. Then God gives us spiritual gifts on top of that. He says, okay, you're going to declare me as king? Great. Here's some other tools that you can use to go out and do the work that I've asked you to do. He's given us spiritual gifts. And on top of that, he's given us the greatest gift of all. In Acts 1, it says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have been given the power of God himself, the presence of God himself to reside in us, to empower us to go out and to do 
He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't say, hey, get out there and do it, and then just stand back and watch. He wants to participate with us. He wants to be in us and help us and move us. These are the gifts that we have been given as Christians. These are the ten minus that have been handed out to his servants. And his command is go and do something with it. Don't sit on it. Don't waste it. And when I come back again, I'm going to ask you what you did with it. I'm going to hold you accountable for it. And it's in that situation that we discover who the real servants of the king are. Who the enemies of the king are. Don't forget what happens at the very end of the story. The king says, all right, all those who rejected me as king, bring them out before me. And like a judge presiding over a huge crowd, he says, now have them killed. Ladies and gentlemen, heaven and hell are real things. Don't kid yourself about that. Don't play with it. Don't, don't forget about it. When we're told to go out and to do the work that God has given us to do, it's because there are are wonderful, wonderful rewards for doing, for doing God's work. There's wonderful rewards for knowing Him and having Him in our lives. There is wonderful rewards for being able to participate in the work that He has asked us to do. There's very real rewards here on earth. And I'm not talking about all those blessings you know, being piled up on us more and more so that we can just enjoy them. Remember, it's meant to be used to go out and use for other things. I'm not saying you're going to get super rich or anything like that. I'm just saying that you're going to enjoy God and you're going to have peace of mind and you are going to be just filled with the Spirit. But on the other end of that, there's heaven and there's hell. And people are going to die. The work that He's given us to do is not just a flippant idea that He has. It is real work and it is salvation and everything hangs in the balance. Jesus has asked us to move. Those who do are his servants. Those who do not are counted as his enemies. Let me ask you today. How do you want to be counted? Lord, it's a hard thing to be held accountable. God, it's easy to forget. It's so easy to be swept up in our day-to-day -day stuff. And tomorrow we're going to go out and we're going to face the same day-to-day -day stuff over again. We have work, we have family, we have friends, we have relaxation time, we have play time. We have all these things, Father, and they all serve us and they can be used to serve you. And Lord, I just, I pray and I hope that we here can be counted as your servants. And God, I pray that, that we can be counted as servants, not because we're afraid of you, not because you're some sort of cosmic jerk who wants to kill us, but because, Lord, you desire to prosper us, you desire to, to help us, to empower us. And God, you've demonstrated that over and over again, and may we live lives worthy of those gifts. Father, help us. If we don't believe, Lord, I pray that you come into our disbelief and question us. If we believe, Father, I pray that you come to us and hold us accountable to those things.
asked us to do. And Lord, in all things, I pray that we listen to the Spirit who will guide us and teach us and give us the strength and give us the words and give us the ability to go and do the things that you've asked us to do. Lord, be with us now. In Jesus' name.